We are continuing in the book of John, chapter 1. We won't finish chapter 1 tonight, but we're going to make some headway. So next week, Pastor Renee will finish chapter 1. Uh, so this section in John, uh, of course, this is uh, John, you know, the Apostle John, who's writing his testimony about Jesus as the Son of God. And that's the emphasis of his gospel. He focuses on emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God, and he wants us to believe, his readers to believe Jesus is the Son of God and believing in his name that they would have eternal life and that they would be saved. And so that's the crux and the heart of John's gospel. And of course, in the, in the introduction, we've been seeing that, uh, as Pastor Nate picked it up last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist uh, is, was the, the forerunner of Jesus, and he was called by God to, to as a prophet, to speak of the coming of Jesus Christ and to prepare the way for the Messiah to come to the Jews. And so we, he touched on a little bit about John the Baptist last week. And in this section that we're going to cover, we're going to see, we're going to cover three different, three different uh, days uh, in a row where John testifies to different groups of people about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so that's kind of the crux of what we're going to look at. This is looking at John the Baptist's testimony of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I have a question for you. What, what would you say is your testimony concerning Jesus Christ? Who is he and what did he come to do? What would you say? Who would you say Jesus is? Savior, Messiah, Creator, King of Kings, Healer, Living Hope. The Logos, the, the eternal word, the great I am, absolutely, comforter, peace, joy, hope, again, we got lots of hope, love, he is love, all in all, all in all, that's, that's right, Jesus is all in all, life, life, life coach, right? What, else, what did Jesus come, come to do? Set the captives free. For the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to set the captives free. And what does it mean that the captives are set free? What, what does that mean? Forgiveness. So, so we, were, we were captive. What were, what, were, what were we held captive to? Sin. We were in darkness. We were dead, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. So he set us free. He set the captives free. He came to set the captives free. What else did he come to do? Give us life. Came to heal. Save the lost. Absolutely. So these are all things that we could testify, and all of us have experienced this working of Jesus. If we're believers here tonight, we've experienced the working of Jesus in our life. And there, there is this pattern that, that we would fall in, that, that we would have experienced, that would have led us to salvation. We, we, we first have to acknowledge that Jesus came as a man. That he didn't just, he, that, that he didn't, he's not just God up in heaven, but he came, he became flesh and dwelt among us in the incarnation. And then, once we acknowledge that, then, then we have to see him for who he is. We have to recognize who he is in his character, in his nature. And we have to see what he came to do. If you don't know why Jesus came, you get the whole thing wrong. 
You get the whole thing mixed up. There's so many people who have the whole idea of who Jesus is and what he came to do completely mixed up. They think he just came to be a a life coach. (laughs) Sorry to kind of pick on your phrase there. But they think that he just came to be a life coach. Though though, though Jesus can be a life coach for a believer, but for a non-believer, he didn't just come to be a life coach. We can get a life coach. Oprah can be your life coach. Somebody else can, you know, I could be a life coach. I could, I could just quit this career preaching Jesus. I, I can get up here and tell you how to have a good life. It's not, you know, it's not that complicated uh, most of the time. Um, but he didn't come to be a life coach. He came for a specific purpose. And then once you see him for who he is and what he came to do, then you have to make a decision. Are you going to follow him? So I basically just preached my whole message to you in five minutes. That's my message. But we're going we're gonna to unpack it here tonight in these verses. And this is what I just told you, what I summarized right there. This, this idea, what John's going to bring out is he's going he's gonna to declare to one group of people, he's going to say, Jesus is here. He's going to say, Messiah has come and I'm not it. And then he's going to tell people, look at him. Behold the lamb. And then he's going to tell some other people, follow him. And that's the progression of, of salvation. That's what has to take place if you're going to become a Christian. You've got to know what, that he's come, that he came. You've got to know why he came and what he did. And then you have to follow him. And so that's what we're going to see, John's testimony. That's what he's going to testify about. So let's look, let's look at uh, John 1, 19 through 28. It says this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So, so the, the Pharisees sent people to ask John the Baptist, who are you? Because they were con- thinking, well, is he the Messiah? Is he the one to come? Is he Elijah? Is he a, just a prophet? Who are you? And this is what John confessed. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The Pharisees and the Sadducees both wanted to know this. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, they asked him, then why, why are you baptizing If you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. This is the key point here. But among you stands one. Among you stands one that you do not know. Even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So here's what he's saying here. This is the first thing that we see. The the first point here. The first thing that that John is testifying about. He's saying Jesus is here. Messiah is here. You've been waiting for him and you think that I might be the Messiah. But I'm telling you, I am not the Messiah. He's here. He's among you. You don't know him yet. You don't recognize him as Messiah, but he is here. He's come, and I am not even worthy to untie his sandals, untie his shoes. John the Baptist is declaring he is here. The Messiah is here. He is among you. The Son of God has come. 
So what is John speaking of right here? And we covered this in John chapter 1 in the beginning, the first five verses. We, we covered this thought here. He is speaking of the glorious truth of the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus that God becomes a man. That holy God, perfect holiness, puts on flesh and comes and dwells in the midst of darkness. Comes and dwells in the midst of darkness. He is Emmanuel, God with us. What do we see in Matthew 1, 21 through 23? This is what we see. It says, she, speaking of Mary, will bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14. And this is what it says here in Matthew, and then what it says in Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years earlier, more than 700 years earlier in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, 14, he prophesied, and this is what he said. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And so they would have known, these people, that these Jews that were sent by the Pharisees, they would have heard of this prophecy. And this is what John is alluding to, that he has come. He is among you. This is the Messiah. This is the incarnation. He is here. We, we looked earlier in John 1. It talks about the light coming into the darkness. This is John 1, 27. The light has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So what does, it, what does the incarnation look like? What does it, what's the picture? What's the meaning? Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let's look at this. It says, Paul says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. He did, not, he did not strip himself of his deity. He did not cease from being God. And some people will teach that, that, that Jesus stopped being God, and he was just simply a man. But he was fully God and fully man at the same time. He took upon himself the form of a servant or, or of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The incarnation, such a beautiful... You know, look, if you, don't, if you don't believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation, you can't get any traction into believing anything else about the gospel. It starts right here. It starts at Christmas. It starts at Christmas. It starts at the incarnation. It is the most foundational doctrine of our faith besides the resurrection. It starts right here at the incarnation, at Christmas. It's the reality that Jesus is virgin born. He is sinless. He is perfect. He was not born with a sinful nature as we were born with. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was flawless, but he came to become a man. And this is what Hebrews 2 says. This is why he had to become a man. Hebrews 2 says this, therefore, he had to be made like his brother, speaking of humanity, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That word propitiation means satisfaction for the sins of the people, meaning 
that the sins of humanity had to be paid for, right? The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. And so Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's what the word propitiation means. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus is here. Jesus has come. And this is what John is testifying to these people that are coming. They're wanting to find out, is Messiah here? Has he come? Are you it? And, and John is telling him, he's, he's here. He's among you. There is one that is among you. You don't know him yet, but he's here. You're going to know him. You're going to find out about him. And ultimately, they were going to kill him. They were going to reject him. But he was here. He was among them. Richard Mayhew, in a book called Biblical Doctrine, talks about the, the, in, the incarnation, I think, in a, in a really profound way. He says, though equal with God, the Son of God submitted voluntarily to humanity and death as one who fully possessed the sovereign, free, holy, and loving will to be limited by his choice to obey the Father for the purpose of the program of redemption and the glory of the Godhead. He was equal with God, but the Son of God submitted himself voluntarily to humanity and to death. Fully God, fully man. The light shining in the darkness. John is telling the religious leaders of the Jews, the Messiah is here. God's son has come. And I I love what he says here. He's saying this, and he is greater than me. He says, I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. You know, the, the lowest level of slave during that day would be the one who would stoop down for his master and unstrap his sandals or untie his shoes and remove his shoes for him. What is John saying here in John 1, 27? He says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. What John is saying there, in comparison to Jesus, you're wanting to know about me, Pharisees, in comparison to Jesus, I am lower in rank than a common slave. I am lower in rank than a common slave. And because of that, what was John's mantra? I must decrease so that he can increase. I must decrease so that he can increase. And so what, what, are, what are we called to do as believers? We're called to be like John the Baptist. We must decrease so Christ can increase. And so we, like John the Baptist, can be called by God to prepare the way for those who don't know that the Messiah has come. He's here. He came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He came. He came to fulfill the work of redemption. And so you and I can come in the spirit of John the Baptist And we can say, look, it's not me. I'm not great. I'm not anything special. The one that I'm coming to declare about, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. I am lower than the lowest of all servants in comparison to who Jesus is as Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of God. We're called. This is our calling. Some of you think maybe, well, that's, that's not my calling. It's your calling. We're called in Matthew 28. When Jesus, right before Jesus' ascension, he told his disciples, how many disciples do we have tonight? Come on now. You guys don't want to raise your hand in church? (laughs) You're all disciples. 
He told his disciples, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, I will be with you everywhere that you go. He's going to be with us in the power of the Holy Spirit so we can go in the spirit of John the Baptist and preach repentance. Jesus has come. Messiah is here. This is the first testimony that John the Baptist gave. Such a beautiful picture, the incarnation. He's declaring that that God became man, that Jesus is the son of God. Let's look at the next verses here. Notice what it says here, the next day. The next day, verses 29 through 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Saw Jesus coming toward him, and this is what he said. There's another group of people that he's with. Jesus is coming toward him, John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Why does Jesus rank before John the Baptist? Because he was before me. What did we learn in John 1, 1 through 5? Jesus is, was in the beginning before the beginning had a, be, before the beginning had a beginning. He, was, he is the eternal God. He is God, the creator. Nothing that was made was made apart from Christ. He was at creation. This is what John is affirming again here. He ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. It's so good. He knows what his purpose is. It's not about him. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on him, you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what John came and baptized with water, Jesus comes and fills people with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit in power. He transforms people's lives. It's a different type of baptism. And I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what's the first thing that John testifies about? He's here. Jesus is here. Then on the next day, what is he saying? Second thing, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. He's here. Now look at him. Look at him. Who is Jesus? Who is he declaring Jesus to be? A lamb. Now, wait a minute. These are Jews he's talking to. A lamb? What would they have thought of lambs? Sacrifices. He is saying that Jesus is here as Messiah, and then he's telling them he's here to be a lamb of God. That would have short-circuited their brain. And they're thinking, they're thinking, wait a minute, the Messiah is here. You're saying the Messiah is here? He can't be a lamb because a lamb is, has one purpose, to sacrifice in a, in a Jewish mind. That cannot be who the Messiah is supposed to be. He says, yes, behold the lamb of God. Behold the lamb of God. And that's how Jesus came. How did Jesus come? He, come, he came as a lowly servant. He came, and it says in Isaiah that if you looked at him, it was, there was nothing to be desired at, in, in his very appearance. He came not seeking any fame or notoriety. Actually, throughout the Gospels, how many times did you see Jesus telling people, look, don't tell anybody about this. It's not my time yet to be glorified. He's constantly had to try to keep people's mouths shut about the miracles that was taking place because it wasn't his time to be 
glorified and exalted yet. And, and thousands and tens and tens and thousands of people would follow him. Throngs of people would follow him. And he would escape after he was done ministering and go off to a quiet place on top of a mountain to pray and seek the Father. He came to be a servant of humanity. And this is not what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a Messiah that was coming to be a lamb. What were they expecting? A conquering king. They were expecting liberation. They wanted liberation from Roman rule and oppression. The Jews, throughout the history we read in the Old Testament, they were oppressed and they were liberated and they were oppressed and they were liberated and they were oppressed and liberated. And now they're under oppression again and they're waiting and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're grieving and they're interceding and waiting for liberation and salvation. And when Jesus came, he didn't come in a way that they could have noticed him. That's why we learned last week, why did they reject him? Because he didn't come like they were expecting. There are other reasons why, especially for the religious Jews. They, he upset their religious system. But he wasn't what they expected. But I love, I love, I love how John testifies about him. He, he testifies accurately, right? Behold the Lamb of God. John is saying the wait is over. Messiah is here. And this is who he is. The wait is over. Messiah is here. And this is who he is. Behold him. Look at him. See him for who he is. Look at what he came to do. He came to be the Lamb of God. What do we know about lambs in the Old Testament? The Jews would have known this, what a lamb is for. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. What? Sacrifice, a substitute, a substitute sacrifice for the atonement of sins. This is a picture with Abraham and Isaac, and God provided a substitute for Isaac. And then you see in Exodus 12, the final plague for the nation of Egypt in judgment because of Pharaoh's rebellion against God and his refusal to let God's people go. You see the the tenth plague, the final plague, and God says he's going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And he tells his people, he tells the nation of Israel, if you will sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb, you will put the blood over your doorpost that when the death angel that I send comes, it will pass over your houses and your firstborn will be spared. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement that there was a substitute lamb that took the place that absorbed the wrath of God. That's what it says in Exodus 12. So it's God speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Who is saying he's going to do that? God. God says that. Both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's a picture of the wrath of God being poured out on sin and by the sacrifice and the blood of an innocent, spotless substitute, God's wrath is propitiated and satisfied and God passes over and doesn't judge. This is the picture in in Exodus 12. And this is the picture that, this is how John is testifying about who Jesus is. He's a son of God, but he is the lamb 
of God. And he's speaking to why he came. This is who he is. He's a lamb. He came as a servant. He didn't come to be a conquering king. He came to be a humble servant that would be a sacrificial lamb. And what what does it say in the next verse there? Who takes away the sins of the world. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to be sacrificed. He came to be our substitute, to be the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God. John wrote in 1 John 2 verse 2, he says this about Jesus. He is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about that. It's almost almost too difficult to think about when we think about how undeserving we are of salvation and how deserving we are of, of, of death. Jesus, the sinless, spotless, humble servant came as a lowly lamb to be the sacrifice for our sins. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. We, in our sinful state and our rebellion as being born in sin with the sinful nature, were deserving of God's wrath. Listen, listen, the wrath of God, the full, can you imagine the full wrath of God being absorbed by the innocent Son of God, Son of Man, on the cross, fully man. He absorbed it. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's why Jesus prayed three times, if it is possible, God, let this cup pass from me. Let it pass. He knew what was coming. He knew why he came. He, and that's, that's the picture of salvation. You have to first see that he's come. He came in the incarnation. He became man. And then you have to behold him. Who is he? Who is this son of God? He is the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And he absorbed the full weight of God's wrath upon himself for me. For my rebellion. For my sin. It totally changes your view of your sin. It changes your view of how amazing the gospel message really is when you recognize what Jesus took on our behalf. Separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John Stott says in the cross, in his book, The Cross of Christ, about God satisfying our, the wrath that we deserved, him propitiating this, the wrath of God. It says it cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love, listen to this, God's love is the source, not a consequence of the atonement. God's love is the source of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave. Christ died for us because God loves us. If if it is God's wrath which needed to be satisfied, propitiated, it is God's love which did the, the propitiating. It's God's love which did the satisfying of God's wrath. It's God's love. Because he loved us. 
That's why he came. Because he loved us. That's why he laid willingly. God, if it's possible that this cup pass from you, from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He did it for you. He did it for me. That's why he came. Behold the lamb. This was his purpose. It's a purpose for why he came. This is what his disciples struggled to see. You see it over and over again. Jesus would talk about his purpose and they didn't, had no clue what he was talking about. His death on the cross for them was an ending of their earthly expectations of Jesus as Messiah. And you see this in Matthew 16. Let's read this real quickly. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter, good old Peter, who used to be called what? Simon. Peter, who who his name was changed by Jesus, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Begin to rebuke the Son of God. Can you imagine? Have you ever been tempted to to rebuke God? Sometimes when I hear, there's a song that plays on the radio. I cringe every time I hear the line. The line says, I shook my fist at heaven. And maybe it's, it's this song about God's grace. As a matter of fact, it talks about shaking his fist to heaven. And when I hear it, I cringe. Peter rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're Messiah. You can't die. But he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You're a hindrance to me. Peter, you're speaking under the inspiration of Satan here, and I know where this is coming from, and, and, I, and I'm being tempted. I will be tempted in the future to walk away from this plan of redemption, and, and you're tempting, Satan is tempting me now, so get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus knew why he came. He knew what his purpose was. His purpose was to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And this is a long stretch of scripture I'm going to read as I finish this point, but I just want to read it. It's one of the most beautiful portions of scripture in the entire Bible. And it talks about why Jesus came, who he was and why he came. Who has believed, as Isaiah 53, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne or carried our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We said he was judged by God. He can't be the Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, the lamb of God that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken 
for the transgression of my people. It's Isaiah crying out about his people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit found in his mouth. This is so powerful. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's going to accomplish what he came to accomplish, the redemption of mankind. He's going to prosper. So, what's John's John's testimony? He's here. Behold him. See him. He's here. The Son of God is here. He's here. The Messiah is here. And you have to see him for who he is. Behold him. Look at him. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And what's the third thing that he testifies about? Follow him. Follow him. And that's what we see. John 1, 35 through 39. The next day. So it's the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by. So let's just get this picture. John is right here. I'm just hypothetical. John's here. He has two disciples next to him, two of his disciples. John had John the Baptist had disciples that would follow him, follow his message. Two of his disciples. Jesus is coming. He's walking across. And he looks as Jesus is walking across and he looks at his two his two disciples and he says, "Behold, look. It's the lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Look at him. Look at him. And what does it say? And they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. This is what John is saying. This is what John came to do. He's saying, he's saying I've, came to, I've come to testify that the, the, that the Messiah is here. I've come to testify that he is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And I've come that you might put your faith in him and follow him. Look at him. Follow him. And it says, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you after? And I think that's a question that, 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 that a lot of people need to answer correctly. What are you, what are you after? What, do you see Jesus correctly? Who is Jesus to you? Is he, is he just a good teacher? Is he just a prophet? Was he just a good man? Or is he the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world for the sins of the entire world? Is that who he is? What are you seeking? What are you after? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you going? Basically, where, where are you going? And Jesus says, come and you will see. Come, you'll see. I'm going to teach you why I really came. So he is here. Behold him and follow. That's the gospel. He's come. Look at him and follow him. To follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To follow Jesus means that we leave behind who we were before we beheld his beauty. It means that we leave behind the mindsets and the attitudes that controlled our thinking. To follow Jesus means that we leave everything and give our allegiance to him. It means that we become disciples. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that we become disciples of Jesus this is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, John's disciples, if you're going to come after me, look, 
Look, John, John paved the way. John paved the way for me, and he did his job. He pointed to me. He said, behold the lamb. This is what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Come and see, as Jesus told John's disciples. They asked the question, where are we going? Where do you stay, Jesus? What are you about? What are you after? He says, come and see. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You will lose your life in the end if you seek to save your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever gives up his all for the sake of Christ will find it. And you will have eternal life forever with Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply adding Jesus to your life. That is not being a disciple. It, 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 being a disciple is not knowing and acknowledging that Jesus has come as Messiah, seeing him as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, and then just adding him to your life. Just, just I'm going to add Jesus. I'm just going to come to church and be a good person. I'm just going to add religion to my life and just try to be a good person and just try to be a good Christian. It's not salvation. That's not Christianity. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is following. Discipleship is looking at the one you're following and, and patterning your life after him, laying down all that you are at his feet and surrendering and following him, going after him, pursuing him, going wherever he goes, wherever he leads you. That's what following Jesus is about. It's about making him your Lord. He is your master. You are his slave. You are his servant how the apostle paul described himself as a servant of god as a slave of god we become disciples we don't simply add jesus to our life so he's come he's here he has come we see him for who he is we behold him in all of his beauty as the lamb of god slain for the sins of the world we follow him we make him our lord and we follow him and lastly in conclusion what does he do The third thought is this. He has the power to transform your life. He has the power to transform your life. Let's look at this is our concluding verse here in John 1, 42. Actually, let's, let's go back. Chuck, let's go back to those verses when he called his disciples. Do you have... 40, let's see here. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And, and they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Verse 40, And one of the two who heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon. So Andrew follows Jesus and he goes and he gets his brother Simon. And he says to Simon, we have found the Messiah. We found him. He's here. And he brought him to Jesus. He acted like John the Baptist. In the spirit of John the, in the, spirit of John the Baptist, he pointed his brother Simon to Jesus. This is so powerful. Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon the son of John. 
but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Don't you love that? Isn't that so powerful? Jesus looks at Simon and he knows who he is. He knows what he will be. He knows the mistakes that he will have. He knows that he will deny him three times. And he looks at him when he meets him and he says, you are Simon, but you are going to be called Cephas. You're going to be called Peter, which means rock. And that's the power of the gospel, is that Jesus can transform your life. He has the power to transform your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this new creation stuff making us brand new. Where is it from? Does it say there? All that's from God. God's the one who saves. God's the one who transforms. It's from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, those that have been reconciled, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his his appeal through us. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him. Look at him. He's here. He came. He was the Lamb. He took your punishment. He took your sins. Behold the lamb. We are ambassadors for Christ and we, God makes his appeal through us. That, is, that just blows my mind. I don't know about you. Maybe you're falling asleep right now because I'm preaching long, but just listen to this verse. This is beyond understanding. The God of the universe, the infinite God, holy God, would make his appeal to sinners through us. Are you kidding me? That is unbelievable that he would do that. And so what does Paul say? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is is the message that we proclaim to sinners. The message that we proclaim to sinners is not have a better life. Come to Jesus so you can get stuff. Come to Jesus so you can, can, can just get, get more peace and more joy and fix your marriage and fix all your problems. That's not the gospel. The gospel message, what, what do we say for God to a sinner? Be reconciled to God because the Bible says you're his enemy. The Bible says you are the enemy of the cross of Christ. He says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You need to see Jesus as the Lamb of God who sacrificed his life for you. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become (laughs) the righteousness of God. It's another profound statement right there. In Christ, through faith in Jesus, we become the very righteousness of God. If you struggle to believe as a believer, as a Christian, that you're righteous, you need to read this verse over and over again. If you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ by faith in the work of redemption, you are righteous because God took his very righteousness and he imputed it to you. So when God looks at you, he sees the very righteousness of his 
sinless son, Jesus Christ. That's powerful. You don't, you don't have to lay awake at night if you're a believer and wonder if you're right with God. It's once and for all. It's done. Once and for all sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's a once and for all time sacrifice for your sins. And when you by faith place that faith in Jesus Christ, you are made the righteousness of God. You become a new creation. Galatians 2.20 says this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. My life has been transformed. But Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? So that's what John testified about Jesus. When we testify to who Jesus is and to what he came to do, this is what we should say. Jesus came to earth and lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. His death was on behalf of sinful humanity. He rose again on the third day, sealing his victory over sin and death. By faith, we place our trust in his work of redemption, and we are made new creations. We are born again. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Our lives are increasingly being conformed into the image of Christ, and one day, we will be united with him in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word the truth of your word, God, for the testimony of your word and what it says about Jesus. That he has come. He came, took on flesh, became one of us for the single purpose of being the sacrificial lamb that would satisfy the wrath of God that we deserved. God, because of that, Lord, by our faith, by our faith in the work of redemption, Lord, we have become brand new. We've been made new creations and we have become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And God, we thank you for that. And God, I just pray, Lord, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would implore people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten son to die. And so we thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord. Help us to be, help, help, help this vision of Jesus, Lord, to just stir our heart and our love and our passion for, for him. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.